us in the clue. <laughs> here today with. Oh, Will Sloan. I, are you doing that because I have a cold this week? <laughs> yes, I am. I wanted to put ourselves on equal playing field. I'm Batman. <laughs> oh, finally, you can do your Batman voice. Yeah, and it sounds right. really realistic. Yeah. Let me close my eyes and you introduce the episode in your Batman voice. I can't. I can't. I'm sorry, I can't riff. <laughs> you can't riff? Yeah. Is it your cold? I think it has to be. It's just hurting your riffing opportunities. Yeah, I'm sorry. So this week... Justin's going to get sick this week, by the way. I am I, absolutely yeah. going to get sick. I'm sorry. We're going to be talking about someone that Will brought to the table, and it's... Sofia Coppola. Sofia Coppola. I feel very tired today. <laughs> <laughs> and I uh, and I am sick, so this is going to be a very low-energy podcast. <laughs> We, ju- we just recorded our premium episode about Batman and Robin, so I feel like that took all the energy that I have. <laughs> that's right. So that's kind of perfect for talking about this filmmaker, who's not a big, high-energy one. Yeah, who's a little bit uh, boring, you might say. <laughs> no, I, no I, I don't think that. No, she's takes her time with her films. Uh, most famously, The Virgin Suicides, Lost in Translation, nominated for multiple Academy Awards, Mary Antoinette, The Bling Ring, Somewhere, of, and... Of very Murray Christmas on oh, Netflix. I about that. She directed that. And they recently released The Beguiled. Yes. Uh, I, I like a filmmaker that I can name all their films in one go. Makes me feel good. So, who is Sofia Coppola? Who's her father? Her father is Francis Ford Coppola, director of Jack and, <laughs> and Tetro. <laughs> and Tetro, that's right. <laughs> And um, she's famous for appearing in The Godfather 3. Oh, God. She, you know, she grew up on the set of Apocalypse Now. Isn't that her as a baby in the first Godfather? It is, and she also appears as an immigrant in Godfather 2. And, you know, while she acts in The Godfather 3, she was a last-minute replacement for Winona Ryder, who dropped out. Her role was critically panned across the board, Mm. and she never really acted again. Yeah, too bad. But but (laughs) you're a big fan of Godfather 3? No, it's terrible. But she did get to make The Virgin Suicides, a film that I missed out when it came to video. Like, it's not one that I saw until we decided to watch it for this episode. Really? I see it on your shelf over there. Well, that is my partner's copy, uh, Emily. I guess she also had a copy of uh, The Cat's Meow as well, so she's a big (laughs) Kirsten Dunst fan. That is absolutely the case. Oh, well. So uh, one reason why I was kind of interested in talking about Sofia Coppola is because on the one hand, I guess she's the most famous female filmmaker. I mean, maybe not. You could say Catherine Bigelow. But like, who's the one who, when you say name a female filmmaker, you know, the one who is almost like this... Um, that everybody knows. Symbolic figurehead. Uh, and somebody whose films are very feminine as well. Mm-hmm. It's it's Sofia Coppola. And because of that... So it's two white guys yeah, here to two, talk about yeah, her. Yeah, just two, two guys. I'm going to explain... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> why she's a uh, female filmmaker and what it represents. But I also sense that there, there's been an almost continual backlash ever since Lost in Translation to her. And I feel like a lot of that, some of it's fair, some of it's unfair, but a lot of it has to do with this big place that she holds in the popular imagination. So there's been a lot of talk during the release of The Beguiled about how, oh, uh, she's whitewashing the the Civil War or Reconstruction Era South. Um, and this, I think, has less to do with the actual movie than it does the fact that she's a female filmmaker and therefore people think she has the she bears certain responsibilities, which I think is unfair. Mm-hmm. And also, I think a lot of people have a sense of frustration her because she is maybe the most famous female filmmaker, but she's a Coppola. She's a child of privilege and she makes films about 
Children of Privilege. Mm-hmm. Which is right on my hit list, because I hate movies about yeah, that kind of stuff. And she has not expressed a lot of interest in, you know, exploring outside that privilege. And, and I think that's that's fine. That's perfectly, you know, within her right as an artist. But people, I think, get frustrated about it because she has come to represent something more than herself. That you think that was lost in translation and how big that was, it automatically cemented her as the female filmmaker. And let's be honest, she's never really picked up that mantle since then. Well, I mean, she's never had a had as big a hit as Lost in translation. She's always been kind of a niche figure, even though she has you know, continued to be one of the few female filmmakers that most people can name. So let's talk about Lost in Translation, the movie that everybody had to see because it featured a dramatic, sad, yet funny and touching performance from Bill Murray. Yes. (coughs) And everybody loves Bill Murray. Uh, Did you see this at the time? Yes, I did. I saw it when it came out on DVD because it lived in a small town that had no cinema. Yeah, I saw it on DVD too. And I watched it this week for the first time probably since I was in high school. Mm -hmm. And uh, I gotta say, I really liked it still. And I did not expect to still like it. Didn't do much for me. Really? Okay, well, let's talk about this. So the plot of the movie is um, a very Sofia Coppola-like woman played by Scarlett Johansson. She's uh, visiting Japan with her husband, a very Spike (laughs) Jones-like figure played by Giovanni Ribisi. For people that don't know, Sofia and Spike dated for a long time. They, she appears in they one were of his married, music videos. Oh, they were married. Yes. And ah. uh, I've also heard the rumor that the character in her played by Rooney Mara is based on Sofia Coppola. Oh, wow. So, I didn't know that. So payback. It's like <laughs> their lemonade. <laughs> um, so they're ironic because uh, they shot in the same house for the beguiled that the lemonade video shot in. Oh, okay. Well. And there's a photo of a bunch of white women on the throne that Beyonce is sitting in. Oh yeah. I read that. So uh, her husband in the movie is in town, in Japan, in Tokyo, shooting a band. Also in Tokyo is a movie star played by Bill Murray, who's in town shooting a whiskey commercial. And uh, they're kind of stuck at this hotel, strangers in a strange land. Uh, Bill Murray is escaping his wife for the week, who's in America, and it seems they have a strained marriage. Uh, also a strange, strained marriage between Scarlett Johansson and Giovanni Ribisi. So Johansson and Bill Murray uh, hang out having an almost but not quite affair over the course of the week. Yeah, they just kind of go around Japan looking how crazy and wild and different it is. Okay, so now we're going to get to the racism <laughs> yep. part. Okay, yeah, let, let's hear about the racism. It's almost impossible to read about Lost in Translation anywhere without people talking about racist. And is it? Yes. A, a little bit, yeah. Yeah, it is. Well, I mean, like, can we put a little bit of nuance here? Because yeah. uh, I think the most racist scene is probably the lip my stocking scene mm-hmm. where, where they send uh, they send that... I guess a prostitute up to Bill Murray's room and she keeps saying, lit my stocking, lit my stocking. And there were a lot of jokes in the movie about L's and R's being switched around. So, I mean, that's a little hard to defend. On the other hand, the, the talk show that Bill Murray goes on this movie, there are talk shows like that in Japan. Yeah, there are. Uh, I don't think that's the issue that I had. The one that really threw me for a loop is that there is almost no other characters in the film in Japan are looked at in any other lens than just others Okay, that but, are supposed to be like, ooh, ah, look at this different life that all these people have. But in fairness, I mean... That's what the movie's about. Well, that's the experience that these two characters would have in Japan. Yes. And it's probably the experience that I and you would have in Japan if we... Maybe visited. a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I hate to speak for you, but... <laughs> I've uh, never left uh, North America. <laughs> I, I, I think you perhaps would be a little shocked if you were, you know, flipping channels on Japanese TV and saw, you know, yeah, a weird talk show. A little bit, I guess. But it, it just, it, I found it a little bit sobering, especially that 
all of these instances that they're witnessing is either it's supposed to be like an awe or we're like laughing at them. I think there are maybe a few too many of the laughing parts. Yeah. Like maybe the part where Bill Murray's at the hospital and mm-hmm. he's talking to this woman who, you know, is kind of like a goofy looking woman. Which is, you know, it's Bill Murray's shtick, but when it's yeah. directed toward an entire country, that's when yeah. over and over again. Yeah, I, I get that. I, I am glad, though, that the movie doesn't shoehorn in, you know, kind of this... Uh, you know, an extra character who's like the good Japanese person. Who could... I mean, there's no Japanese characters in the movie. Yeah, but but it's like it's not. It w- it would be tokenism if you just put in one who like. Yeah, you so know, put in two s- or three. Okay, <laughs> fine, fine. Why am I even arguing this? But this is not the reason that you like the movie. <laughs> the <race>. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you buy the relationship between Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson. I do because it's a relationship that can only exist i think in the context of the story that this movie's presenting mm-hmm. you know these are two t- white people over a two, black of asian faces you know two white people they're just so tired of seeing <laughs> others everywhere and they and they and and they they think you know the the white race cannot be kept down so. <laughs> oh no no i mean they're two people who aside from being white have nothing in common mm-hmm. really they're kind of connected only out of loneliness there, there was a lot of debate at the time and maybe there is still some debate about like what does bill murray whisper into her ear at the end of the then movie someone like, blow up the audio at the end and it's just yeah like... it, well uh, yeah and it turns out that it was like just totally mundane stuff because a lot of people thought well maybe he said his phone number to her or something like that but or you know like i used you to make me for myself feel better yeah but i mean uh th- there's n- no way this relationship could continue outside the context of this i mean it's so benign and I, I think there's quite a bit of question as to what exactly their feelings are towards each other in a movie like in the mood for love i don't think there's a lot of doubt that the characters are in love mm-hmm. but in this movie i think there is doubt yeah because what brings them together is like we discuss the fact that they have nothing else to anchor them in this world where everything is foreign yeah to like and she knows who he is because he's a star mm. so that's an extra bit with each other the other thing i like about the movie is the way that it kind of captures and makes beautiful the experience of being in a hotel room in a foreign country there are scenes where you just hear the kind of ambient noise of the traffic a, a lot of Sofia Coppola's movies, I think, are maybe a little hard to talk about because they're so surface level mm. in a way. Well, like... they're always about people in transition, right? Yeah. And she never goes for the big emotional beats, whether yeah. it be Marie Antoinette or even like somewhere. Yeah. It's all about like these emotions that are just bubbling under the surface and nobody's actually really acting upon them. But I, I think Sofia Coppola is somebody who loves surfaces. She's somebody who loves the way things look and sound, and she likes capturing that. So a lot of the pleasure of her movies, if you find them pleasurable, comes in sharing her pleasure at this kind of sensual beauty. Well, I think her films are undeniably visually opulent and fun to look at. Yeah. I just wish more was going on. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you're... you're, you're you're kind yeah, of Joe, Joe Popcorn at the multiplex. I'm more of like a Michael Bay person. You know, give me the explosions and the crazy camera moves. But looking at a movie like The Virgin Suicides would have probably been something that I loved if I had seen it when it had come out at the time. It's playing with all those stylistic tics that a first filmmaker does, where there would be like weird flashbacks or mm-hmm. documentary um, interviews interspersed through the film in which... Who plays old Josh Hartnett? <laughs> Michael Pore. Yeah, from No Deposit. <laughs> <laughs> and Streets of Fire. <laughs> this film also stinks of a first production 
that it's the daughter of someone famous making because it's peppered with like really famous actors doing nothing in their roles like Danny DeVito playing a psychiatrist for a few scenes. I was pretty happy to see James Woods and Kathleen Turner as the parents. James Woods in not crazy mode. (laughs) (laughs) James Woods seems to have gone off the deep end. It was weird seeing him just as kind of like a schlubby dad. Like a normal guy not being like uh, you know the the conspiracy's going on they're trying to keep me down. Yeah yeah Uh, I I have trouble watching Kathleen Turner in a movie like this without thinking of Serial Mom. (laughs) Great movie though. Great film. I liked this movie though. I really like this yeah. movie. Yeah. It's a kind of, you know, light and fluffy stuff with those really deep kind of emotions at the end just to make it feel real. Um, Emily, my partner who owns the movie, talked about how the movie really impacted her when she was a teenager and had a chance to see it and that it did reflect how she felt as well. And like, there's a line at the end that, you know, it was a house so full of love. How could this have happened? Yeah. I think the movie does a really good job capturing the kind of casual cruelty of teenagers. You know, the four, or is it five siblings in the movie? Four siblings, then one of them kills herself uh, Mm -hmm. early on. They're regarded by all the boys in the neighborhood as this kind of like weird, freaky thing. Yeah. Uh, They're they're dehumanized in a way. Yeah, they view it at a distance, right? Like, And the way that the film is narrated as well... They talk about, at one point, seeing the girls' diaries and understanding them. But at the same time, it's also still putting them on a kind of pedestal. They're not a person, really. There's a strong, like, virgin whore complex in the way that they they treat these teenagers. Like, sex, when kids are, you know, 13 or 14, is such a novelty. It's it's so mysterious. and It means everything. Yeah, it means everything. And... Uh, like in this movie when Josh Hartnett has sex with Kirsten Dunst all the mystery of her is totally totally disappears and he has no interest in her anymore and you know the kids are kind of so fascinated by the dichotomy between the fact that these girls look so pure and then at night Kirsten Dunst is like hooking up with guys on the roof Mm -hmm. I've read online as well that there's like a huge pushback against the film as just trivial superficial nothing especially that it obviously feels that this was very popular for teens at the time. And now looking back on it, it's lost some of its luster. I think that probably has a lot to do with the fact that, you know, it was a movie. It's like kids who were so into Donnie Darko or something and <laughs> they turn their back on it. It's like people can't really, perhaps people can't really view it objectively. Yeah, because it represents so much of what being a teenager used to be. Yeah, I mean, this is a movie that I think I saw in high school and meant nothing to me. And now <laughs> you're I, like, I, I almost... throw the boondocks eights back on <laughs> <laughs> And I, I had totally forgotten it. And then I watched it now and I thought it was good. Yeah, it's good. I th- and I think I think it really does accurately uh, capture something about the way that boys and girls interact at that age. Now, Marie Antoinette, big film, played a con, booed famously. Well, you know, it's hard for directors after they have the big breakthrough movie, isn't it? Especially when they're tackling French history and it's playing in France, directed by an American female filmmaker, which those critics probably did not want to see. No, they're like, oh, ha, 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 (laughs) a female filmmaker. (laughs) We only have room for one, Agnes Varda. (laughs) So, Marie Antoinette. Fan? No? Yes? Um, I'm mixed on yeah, it. Yeah, me too. You know, I, 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 I see what it's trying to do. and I, <laughs> I just I, don't, I, you know, I it's respect, not that fun. I respect what it's trying to do. It, I hear it explained to me that it's like, it's trying to make Marie Antoinette's experience more accessible to us by using, you know, more modern pop music. There's a few inserts of modern culture, like she has Converse sneakers on the ground and stuff like that. 
And I respect that. I think yes. that's an interesting idea. Yeah, you tell me that and go, hmm, yeah, sounds like a good idea. And perhaps if you are a daughter of Francis Ford Coppola. And, <laughs> and you're and rich. You, yeah. And you know this kind of emptiness that comes with opulence. And, like, and it's like you, like Marie Antoinette, have spent so much of your life being kind of like in the shadow of more famous men. Mm-hmm. then I, I can definitely get why this movie... But as we're two dudes and we get everything we want? You know, we just like watching sports on TV and uh, eating eating chicken wings. I was surprised watching Mary Antoinette this time. I had never seen it. That it was so cold in its presentation. After seeing Virgin Suicides, I expected something a little bit more playful. Mm-hmm. And it is kind of very uh, formalist in the way that it presents its stuff. Almost as if it wants to let you know, all right, like, I'm doing this this way, but I still know how serious it is. Right. Um, so how about Somewhere? Have you ever seen it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Somewhere is probably my least favorite of her films. Now, Somewhere is the rich person feeling empty in life movie. Yeah. It's kind of like if you took Lost in Translation, but took Bill Murray out of it. So all you had was... was Stephen this... Dorff? Yeah. The Boondock Saint himself? And in fact, watching Lost in Translation this week... Wait, I... no. Stephen Dorff is not a Boondock Saint. What, what? He was in Cecil B. Demented. That's right. And he was also the villain in Blade. And uh, what was the Uwe Boll movie he was in? Alone in the Dark. Yes, that's right. Christian Slater and Stephen Dorff. All Go... the stars are gone from the sky. All cause... of Jack Nicholson's children... <laughs> <laughs> converged in Alone in the Dark. <laughs> but yeah, somewhere um, I saw an interview with a Sophia where she said that she was inspired by the cinema of Chateau Ackerman and you were like, oh yeah, I got yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, well, it's certain. It's certainly slow. Yes. And I don't like the milieu that it's set in. Which is grungy and well, kind of stripped down LA. Well, it's like a, a celebrity who's being kind of like carted from one interview mm. to another in hotel rooms and he's got these two strippers who were in his room at one point. And, Twice. Right. And you, you kind of... You're kind of in there thinking, yes, this this is an empty life, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's time. It's tough to find happiness in this when you're when you're so famous and so rich. But you know, he has his daughter, and I heard that, nice? that Kevin Smith's wife loves this movie. Is that so? And that she was moved to tears while watching it. Oh, good for her. But you know, that show never that... mentioned Kevin Smith on my podcast again. <laughs> <laughs> I said his wife. Okay, Jen. Is that her name? Let's move on. <laughs> Yeah, to to a deeper discussion into somewhere. No, we're not going to do that. Well, what I'll say is, as I was watching Lost in Translation, it made me realize that I think what her movies have been missing is that Bill Murray spark. Yeah, a little bit of charm. A little bit of, like, just live wire energy in them. They've all been very polite since then. Which brings us to the bling ring, which is, again, very polite and kind of presenting things how they are. I don't know why I had this idea in my mind that it was going to be like a crazy, you know, teens in the modern era film. Well, because you hear the premise and you you think it is. You hear the sleigh bell song that's over the opening credits, which is like this in-your-face distorted rock music. Now, this movie was based on a true story of a gang of teenagers who realized, well, they looked on the internet to see when certain celebrities like Paris Hilton or whoever would be out of town. They realized most of them didn't bother to lock their doors. So they went into their houses and tried on their clothes and stole some stuff. Yep. And that's it. And that's it. And th- the problem is these characters really are shallow. Um, once you hear what they've done and their explanations for why they've done it, there's not a lot else there. And when you take the insights that the movie offers, like the fact that we live in a fame obsessed culture, well, stop the presses. Right? <laughs> yeah, I like, get it. Um, the movie is very visually beautiful, but I also hate this milieu. Oh, yes. 
I mean, I hate these people. I it's hate, not only I rich people; this. it's rich kids. Yeah, r- r- rich kids, rich entitled kids. I like that it's a very unsentimental film. There's not a lot of editorializing. No. Um, I mean, I was gonna say that Coppola doesn't tell you what to think, but I mean, the very fact that she's presenting these people kind of tells you what to think, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you think that she feels more th- sympathy for these kids? Than an audience of blue collar Joes like myself would get out of it. <laughs> uh, probably, but I mean, I think she also sees them for what they are. Yeah, just yeah. empty frauds. I mean, everybody does. Yeah, so it, they're not very pleasant people to spend ninety minutes with. I think the uh, most fun piece of information <laughs> was that Sofia Coppola's film was beaten by a Lifetime movie, also called The Bling Ring. <laughs> To oh, the screen. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if that one is also cold and distant in its treatment of its subjects. Well, which one are we still talking about on a podcast today? <laughs> the I, Lifetime I, Network I, one, obviously. So, uh, have you been out to see The Beguiled yet? I did. And I got a chance to see it. And before I went, I saw the Don Siegel original, which I had never seen. Loved it. Mm. Uh, for people that don't know, it's about a... Uh, Yankee soldier in the Don Siegel version played by Clint Eastwood whose leg is injured he's taken in by a house of women in the south where they eat each lust after him while he emotionally exploits them until things blow up in his face misery style and this is during the civil war as yes well. it's the, in the middle of the civil war the, these, the, the women have a black slave uh, in the film in the Don Siegel film. in the Don Siegel version yes famously they don't have a black slave in the Sofia Coppola one because she felt that Race was uh, too big an issue for her to deal with fairly in, you know, in the context of this movie. Which it's is, interesting, which though, but has led to a raft of think pieces about how in she the Don Siegel version, the uh, African American character is presented very positively. Mm. She has a drive for herself. She gets her own voiceover narration at some points, mm. which is uh, absent in the uh, Sofia version. Sofia Coppola was forced this week to deliver a statement to IndieWire. Uh, which is really the lowest circle of hell. Uh, where <laughs> in respo- Top 10 podcasts for <laughs> Cinema Club. In response to some of her critics, and she said, I wanted to tell the story of the isolation of these women cut off from the world and in denial of a changing world. My intentions in choosing to make a film in this world were not to celebrate a way of life whose time was over, but rather to explore the high cost of denial and repression. I think it's a sorry state when she has to come out and make a statement like that, when it's so fucking obvious when you see the movie. Yeah, it's like Kevin Smith having to apologize for Mallrats, right? (laughs) Stop talking about Kevin Smith. (laughs) I don't want people to get the wrong impression about our podcast. No, what, what Kevin Smith says? We're we're talking about classy filmmakers like Sofia Coppola. (laughs) Oh, not trash filmmakers like Kevin Smith? Uh, so Sofia Coppola's version, uh, compared to the more, uh, live wire kind of crazy, psychologically weird, uh, sweaty, like kind of the Don Siegel version is a horror film. Yeah. And I think that Clint Eastwood's role works perfectly because he is Clint Eastwood in the Don Siegel version. Eastwood is portrayed as a liar and Mm. a lout. He says stuff like, Oh, I don't carry a gun. I'm a pacifist uh, during the battle. While he's saying this, they cut to footage of him sniping unarmed men from a tree or like, I want to keep property the way it is. And they cut to him burning down stuff as he's emotionally uh, manipulating all these women. While in the uh, Coppola version, it's just Colin Farrell is just, a dude. He's a cipher, frankly. Yeah. And I, I think, well, the movie's much more about the women. Coppola's one is more about the women than Don Siegel's version, which is very much about the man and how the women are kind of affecting him and how he's affecting them. Mm-hmm. I think it's a problem that Colin Farrell is so uncharismatic. And bland. Yeah, he's nothing. It's weird because watching the Siegel version, Clint Eastwood is from the North, right? And they're from the South. In the <laughs> Sophia Coppola version, 
Colin Farrell's from the North, but he's also from Dublin, so he is a literal other in their midst. Like, he doesn't really represent anything. Yeah, so I don't think that works. Uh, I mean, it, it works on, to the extent that... I mean, it's hard not to make the story work when you take a house full of, like, yeah. Southern confederate women and put a man in it and see how it unravels that's kind of an intrinsically interesting idea but i found it so cold in its portrayal and that her decision to also set it in the south again like i think it would have been interesting if the story had been put anywhere else than say telling the same story again hitting all the same beats too well i don't know i mean i, I liked the movie a little more than you did mm-hmm. i thought i thought it was stunningly beautiful it, i there's no doubt in my mind that it was beautiful and uh, I like the way that it's beautiful, but it it makes this this house look like a tomb that you yeah. can't escape from. Yeah, they're just kind of tiptoeing from room to room, waiting to die because there's nothing else going on. So if that's the central idea of Coppola's interpretation of this story, then that's interesting, I think, and it's worth exploring. And I'm glad I spent a little time there, even though I wish the movie were a little more exciting. Yes. I mean, she's not interested in um, squeezing any suspense out of the situation. Yeah. There's there's a very violent act that happens in the film that even in her version is like, okay, yeah, that's it. This is the thing. Like, ever since Lost in Translation, I've kind of had this feeling watching her movies where within 20 minutes I get what the idea is mm-hmm. and then I'm stuck watching it for another hour and a half. But... That's obviously what she's passionate about, and those are the kind of movies that she's going to make. Like, there's no doubt that she's an auteur. Like, yeah. that, she's going to do it over and over and over again. And it's good that she gets to keep making well, these things. Well, you know, all of her movies offer something for me, and I'm I'm happy to continue seeing them. I just wish I liked them a little more. Yeah, I wish I did too. <laughs> but, like, saying stuff like, you know, she's a daughter of a famous filmmaker, she's making these movies, <clears throat> and she's rich... That's what all the movies are about. It's almost like she's going, yes, I know who I am. I'm going to make movies about this thing. I'm not going to try to hide it. Yeah. Well, we have some mail, Will. Oh, good. (laughs) I can hear the enthusiasm in your voice. (laughs) I hope they're short letters so I can go back to bed. (laughs) Uh, They are very long. (laughs) Greetings, important cinema clubbers. I've been binging your show at work for the last three weeks, and I am really enjoying what I've heard so far. You guys strike a great balance of entertaining and informative, and the witty conversational style is fun and engaging. Keep it up. Thank you. So my favorite episodes have been your looks at Orson Welles, Fritz Lang, and David Lynch, some of my favorite filmmakers, and I'd really dig your opinions on P.T. Anderson, Alejandro Gonzalez in a Ritu, given Will's man love for Michael Keaton, (laughs) (laughs) and the pre-Lord of the Ring work of Peter Jackson. Oh, I love to talk about that. Yeah, we can do that. I'd Mm. also love to see you guys discuss acting like those of Daniel Day-Lewis, Marion Cotillard, (laughs) especially her pre-Oscar work. I mean, how much fun would it be to talk about her truth or beliefs? Uh, yeah. I, 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 I don't care that much about Maria Cotillard, but I definitely would like to hear more of what she has to say about 9-11. <laughs> Peter Lorre and or Tilda Swinton. Hey, Peter Lorre, that'd be fun. Yeah, that would be fun. Yeah. You guys mentioned Jonathan Rosenbaum a lot on your show. He's one of my favorite film critics as well. I got the opportunity to meet a costume a few years ago, and he seemed like a really nice guy. Would you guys ever consider devoting an episode to him like you did for Pauline Kale? That's an interesting idea, isn't it? Yes, we could read his biography, Moving Places, and discuss Well, that. I don't know if I want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> that is um, the one book. If you guys listening want to get into Jonathan Rosenbaum, who I heavily recommend... Do not pick up his book, Moving Places. It is a biography he wrote that was for him and him alone. I didn't make it past the first chapter, but hey. uh, His films, Essential Cinema, Essential. Movies as Politics is great. Placing movies is very good. Mm -hmm. 
he's a great critic, and you can read what DVDs he's bought every month in Cinemascope. The article I flip to first every time. And this person goes, Though I've never gotten to your Criterion episode yet, I'm going to assume you love them as much as I do. Are you planning on taking advantage of the Barnes & Noble's 50% off Criterion sale this month? If so, what discs are you planning to pick up? All right, letter writer, do you work for Criterion? Oh, this is what it is, right? Boss marketing? <laughs> Thanks for being such a great and engaging podcast and for keeping my brain engaged at work. Stephen Foxworthy. Well, thank you very much. I don't generally patronize the Barnes & Noble sale because I live in Canada. And by the time you put the shipping and handling costs and the uh, exchange rate, (coughs) it's not that great a value. I am terribly poor and can't even imagine ordering anything off the internet, so I will not be participating in that sale. Yes. I'm sorry, Criterion salesman <laughs> who claims that you're that you're a listener, but no, seriously, thank you very much. Thank Ed. you very much for your letter. And Jonathan Rosenbaum episode, maybe. Uh, yeah, maybe. I really like him, and yeah. I feel like we've probably talked about him enough that if you edited all those clips together, it would make its own episode. Yeah. All right, well, we have a second letter, Will. Okay. <laughs> what do you want me to say? Please let me sleep, Will. <laughs> hey, Will and Justin. The reach of your podcast have reached the recesses of the Tallahassee bogs. You guys know you're doing great work, so I'll keep the praise brief. I have really come with a few questions. Having listened to basically all of your episodes at this point, like most listeners, I reached a point where I heard you discuss a movie that I really want to watch but I am unable to find a physical copy of. Or maybe I can find a physical copy of certain movies, but I'm financially unable to drop decent sums of money on every movie I want to watch. The discussion of downloading movies in this day and age is one I thought I had grown tired of. I've never illegally downloaded a movie before but getting deeper and deeper into cinephilia i am reaching a point that if i ever want to see certain movies it looks like i would have to download them like i mentioned i live in florida so seeing these things in a theater is out of the question i want to support filmmakers i love like johnny toe but i'm too poor to buy all of his movies i hate the idea of people thinking that they deserve to see all the movies in the world for free i don't think that is right but I sometimes find myself thinking a movie is meant to be seen. I'm basically wondering what you guys think about this issue. Is downloading movies always wrong? When is it okay, if ever? What are other ways of seeing things? Do you illegally download movies? Do you think this is a problem? I'm going to play the fifth. <laughs> uh... Uh, first, I have to say, because I think you're legally forced to answer this question, <laughs> are you a police officer? <laughs> yes. So... This is a very thorny question, right? Number one, downloading movies is taking money out of people's pockets. It is. And saying any differently is you're fooling yourself. I've heard all sorts of justifications for it. (laughs) And you're fooling yourself. From a personal standpoint, I made a movie called Teddy Bomb. Uh, It took a long time to come out. I uh, made a Blu-ray, was ready to release it. And a week before it came out, someone messaged me and went, Hey, did you know your movie's online on YouTube? And I went, what? And I checked, it had like 8,000 hits or something like that. And I emailed the guy, guess what? There's nothing I can do about it. And since then, it's been uploaded to different accounts and stuff like that. And it's up there. Wow, so now you know where to see Teddy Bomb. And has it hurt the money that I've received? Absolutely. The version online looks like shit. And I sold almost no Blu-rays, like none. And I, I have no doubt that it's because it's online. Like people who would have bought like a Vimeo link or gotten a Blu-ray to see the movie have not done it because they saw a shitty link online. That's actually an old version that I had sent to a distributor to take a look at. 
Well, um, so I, I know some people who are listening have probably checked it out, and uh, the way you can make things right is to throw Justin 20 bucks. Yes, uh, teddybomb.com, you can buy it there. Uh, so yeah, it does affect people. Like, it does. And it is also the reality that we're living with now. Like, yes. it's not going away. Yeah. Like, the movies will be available out there. Uh, my suggestion is... Put your money where your mouth is, and like, if you want to go see a movie, go and see it. Especially indie films, which are the ones that are the biggest chances to take. So most people usually like either download them or find them some other way, which completely takes the money out of the pockets of the filmmakers making it. And those people cannot make movies anymore. Uh, my policy is generally that if the movie is available and uh, yeah, yeah, is readily available, then I pay for it. Yeah. Uh, but if it's like a very obscure, out of print thing, well, I watch Alone in the T-shirt Zone uh, this week, and that film is not available on DVD. It's nowhere. Uh, I watch it on YouTube when it's up there. Yeah. So like, did I feel any qualms about that? No, I, I, obviously I didn't. Yeah. It just, you got to be just conscious of what you're doing. And I feel that, you know, when people try to justify themselves, like saying stuff, don't artists just want their movies to be watched? They want to be able to live get, and eat. get money so they can make the next movie. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can understand when people... And not saying this is right, that they're like, oh, I'm sticking it to the big old Hollywood guy. But the thing is, is that kind of bleeds into everything else as well. Well, think about it. If you don't pay for like an older Hollywood movie, that gives them less incentive to do a restoration on those older Hollywood movies or to make those older Hollywood movies available. Yeah, like back in the day, um, there used to be hundreds and hundreds of Asian films released on DVD in North America. Guess what? Now there's none. Yeah. Like companies don't do it anymore. Yeah. Because people found other avenues to download them. And so, you know, the new Takashi Miike film usually doesn't make it to Blu-ray anymore. Yeah. But hey, listen, if you want to illegally download something, I'm not your priest. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, we, like, you don't need permission from us. Like, yeah. I feel like... <laughs> the letter continues. I was also wondering, you guys being Canada natives and all, if you guys know of the small group of cinephiles filmmakers that have emerged in the past couple of years from the country. I'm talking specifically about movies like 8888, from Isaiah Medna, or Hit to Pass, from Kurt Walker. I guess there's a pretty good chance you might even know these people. I asked because I recently watched Hit to Pass and was really impressed. Thanks for your conversations. And this letter is from Tommy Scarpinato. Uh, well, I've heard of those films, but I haven't seen them. I have not seen them either. Uh, but I, there are certain... But Will has his pulse to the experimental art film scene in Toronto. I, 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 uh, I came up... There are some... Uh... You know, we've talked about Kazakh Radwanski's movies like Tower mm. and uh, what the hell is the other one called? Uh, Heavy. How Heavy This Hammer. Uh, or there's or there's the guy Matt Johnson who did The Dirties and Operation Avalanche. And he did a Nirvana the band the show, which is uh, currently playing on Vice TV. I saw one this year that I liked called, called Never Eat Alone by a director named Sophia Badonowitz. I might be pronouncing her name wrong. Which is, it's sort of derivative of Chantal Ackerman, but there are worse people to be derivative of. And, yeah. I, and I liked it very much. Um, yeah, there are interesting things happening in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Teddy Bomb. Teddy Bomb. <laughs> Impossible Horror. It, available on Blu-ray, I heard. <laughs> <laughs> At teddybomb.com. The only thing missing is a Will Sloan commentary track on it. Well, uh, Justin has another movie coming out soon. <laughs> and perhaps, perhaps then I'll be invited. <laughs> All right. Um, other than that, we hate to burst your bubble that like we're in with all the filmmakers because obviously we are. We know them all. Oh yeah, we're we're great pals with all of them. <laughs> David Cronenberg, call oh, him up on the phone. Adam McGoyan is uh, is just sitting off mic right now. Hey Adam. 
Because we're in the uh, Canadian Film Institute right now, recording these podcasts. You know, I think it's wrong for for critics like us to uh, <laughs> to to spend time being friends with filmmakers. I think it would make us less objective. All right, so that's it for this episode. You can send us any questions or comments at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, make sure to go and rate and review us on iTunes. And if you like us and want to hear more of us every week, you can check us out on Patreon. For $5 a month, you get an extra episode of the Important Cinema Club every week. This week, it's the 20th anniversary of Batman and Robin, so me and Will talked about it for 20 minutes so please check that out thanks for listening until next week the balcony is closed (laughs) please i'm not gonna let you say that anymore i had the great pleasure of showing a film directed by albert pune on the big screen at the royal cinema this week through uh the series i co-host lays black film society we showed nemesis which, if you haven't heard about it, is like a cyberpunk, John Woo-ish spaghetti western that was made in the early 90s and was most famous as a direct-to-video um, action series. I mean, more than anything, it's a Terminator ripoff. A little bit, yeah, because it's about cyborgs. Yeah. And this is a film that was never meant to be shown big, widescreen, but wow, was it nice on the big screen. You had a 35 millimeter print of Albert Pune's nemesis. Albert Pune, if you don't know, is often called the Ed Wood of the modern day, like the 90s. He is a director that people just love to shit on. He made the original Captain America, where it was played by uh, J.D. Salinger's son, who most famously in the film feigned being sick, so the driver of the car he was in would get out so he could then run back and steal the car and drive away. (laughs) Classic. He also made films like Sword and the Sorcerer, uh, Brain Smasher, A Love Story. A which... ticker with the unbeatable duo of Tom Sizemore and Steven Seagal. And Dennis Hopper. And Dennis Hopper, God. <laughs> well, yeah, but Nemesis is Albert Pune at probably his most purest form, where he actually has a little bit of money to play with, and he it shows on screen. It was visually beautiful. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, it's shot all in Hawaii, and Nemesis is just golden in the way, like, everything is golden. And, like, the opening action scene, which takes place in this insane, like, broken down, uh, I don't know what it was. Yeah, uh, well, you know, our friend Peter Kaplowski was saying after the screening how sad it is that the shitty VOD movies today, they're not as idiosyncratic. Yeah, like, Albert Pune whether you like it or not, has a vision that he wants to put up on screen. Yeah. While people like the ones making the Asylum blockbusters have nothing to say. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, Albert Pune's vision is like... Cyborgs and Blade Runner ripoff. It's like, yeah, it's like filched from a bunch of other people. <laughs> yeah, but there is a certain passion in his work. Yeah, without a doubt. I was moved to learn uh, from your intro that Albert Pune is currently suffering from multiple sclerosis, and yet even so is still making he has four movies in development on imdb yeah he's a filmmaker that i mean i'd love to do an important cinema club episode down the line because i think there's a lot to explore there but he started independently and he's been making films like non-stop since the like mid 80s and he's a filmmaker that's always experimenting while he's making films like nemesis which are just cyborg blowing their heads off he also made a movie where he had enough money left over that he went and shot another picture in two days that's like a jess franco move right there called deceit what a great man (laughs) and it's that kind of like 
rock and roll attitude, as he actually um, described his own filmmaking style, that has always attracted me to him. Hey, what movie are you showing at the Royal next month? Uh, we're showing um, No Retreat, No Surrender 3, Blood Brothers. <laughs> Again, on 35mm. That's insane. Yeah, like, these films were never meant to be shown this way. Toronto has a bounty of riches. Uh, at the University of Toronto, Justin and Peter have stumbled on this 35mm collection they have because various distributors that went out of business would just dump their archives on U, on U of T. So they have all these 35 millimeter prints of Albert Pion movies <laughs> that have never played anywhere that will never play in a class. No, because why would they show <laughs> why it? Would they? Well, yeah. I mean, when I teach action cinema at the university of Toronto, I'll be uh, screening the Albert Pion, uh, 35 millimeter print of Nemesis. Yeah, uh, like eight weeks are Albert Pion. And the, other, <laughs> and the other eight weeks are, um, John Woo, John Woo. Yeah, yeah. that's right. The two greatest action filmmakers. <laughs> Pune and Wu together at last. <laughs>